You're listening to TIP. The first is, can they actually kill it? And five years ago, maybe if all the governments of the world had united to kill Bitcoin, maybe they could have. We're past that point. The network is so valuable and so distributed and has so much economic activity built on top of it. On today's episode, I sit down to chat with a very special guest, Andy Edstrom. Andy is a wealth manager at Westcap Group and is managing director of Swan Advisor Services. He's also the author of Why Buy Bitcoin, the only Bitcoin investment thesis published in book format by a professional wealth manager. Andy's opinions have been published in the Wall Street Journal and The Economist, and he is a frequent guest on Bitcoin-focused podcasts. During the episode, I chat with Andy about why Bitcoin should be considered as a part of an investment portfolio, how Andy thinks about valuing Bitcoin as an investment, how investors can potentially keep themselves from buying the top in Bitcoin, the 14 characteristics of money and how Bitcoin stacks up against gold and fiat currency, some of the common misconceptions around Bitcoin, and a whole lot more. As a friendly reminder, nothing included in this podcast is investment advice. Please speak with your registered advisor prior to making financial decisions. Andy brought a ton of value during our conversation, so sit back and make yourself comfortable because you don't want to miss today's episode with Andy Edstrom. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And on today's show, I'm joined by Andy Edstrom. Welcome to the show, Andy. Clay, it's great to be with you. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, you are the author of the book, Why Buy Bitcoin? So Bitcoin is definitely right in your arsenal as far as your areas of expertise. To get us kicked off, what is your Bitcoin story? How did you discover Bitcoin? So Clay, I'm one of those three exposure guys. And I find this is quite common in the space, which is like, the first time you know, someone mentions it or you see an article, you, know, you ignore it or you think it's stupid or it'll never work. And second exposure, you still ignore it. And by the third time, then you start paying attention. So I was one of those. I was on vacation with my wife and my infant son. And I was listening to The Economist magazine on audio, so like pod version, in 2013. And I heard an article and I didn't get it at all and just completely went over my head. I thought, oh, that sounds strange and dumb and I'm going to ignore that. And then the second exposure wasn't till 2016, which is when I saw an article, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, and it was actually about the Ethereum hard fork, right? The DAO hack or the DAO attack and the Ethereum classic hard fork. And again, I had no idea what they were talking about. And then it was, I think, second quarter of 2017, when one of my smart friends, Arun Rao, who's a Silicon Valley guy and a startup entrepreneur, he started an AI company after having worked at PIMCO, which is sort of an interesting uh, mixed bag. He's an interesting guy. But anyway, he put it on my radar. And that's when I started doing my research, doing my due diligence. Price was going up at a pretty rapid rate. And I didn't buy my first Bitcoin until... It was literally the day or the day after the hard fork with Bitcoin Cash. So that was August 2nd of 2017. And I made the usual journey, which is you hear about Bitcoin and then you hear about crypto, this whole wild and wonderful world of 
digital assets. And then after lots of playing around, whatever, buying, trading, a bunch of different assets, and then the crash through uh, the end of 2017, I really started digging in and focusing more on Bitcoin. And for me, writing the book actually was... There were several reasons I wrote the book, but one of the reasons was actually testing my own thesis and testing my own conviction in Bitcoin at the bottom of the bear market. So it was... I started putting pen to paper in January of 2019. Bitcoin was at 3K, right? Having come down from 20K. And I wanted to get my clients into it. And I knew that was going to be an impossible conversation at that moment because people were going to call me a lunatic, basically. Like, what? You know, this thing was a bubble. It was tulips. You know, it's down 85%. You're crazy to buy this thing. And so I knew that if I was going to have to get, or if that I wanted to get my clients into it, then I was going to have to provide some ammunition, some really strong analysis, a real development of this thesis, real exhaustive list of all the risks, the potential risks. And so that was the genesis of the book, which took from January to September of 2019. And the book was published in September 2019. So that's sort of in a nutshell, my Bitcoin journey. We've really seen the price of Bitcoin take off the past 12 to 18 months. And it's just so interesting to see so many people starting to take interest in it, especially people I would have never imagined that would own it are now owning it. It almost feels like Bitcoin has crossed that inflection point where a couple of years ago, you're pretty crazy if you owned any of it. And now it's just totally normal to have it as some part of your portfolio. I think we have crossed that threshold. Exactly as you said, when I was sort of shouting into the wind in 2019 after publishing the book, trying to you know, talk to my fellow financial advisors, people in wealth management, people in the institutional space, and they just weren't interested. They were not paying attention. By now, obviously, the pandemic provided extra fuel for the fire because it was just another story, or Bitcoin has to some degree been another story of, oh, the world's moving online. And if this is internet native money, then yeah, this is going to be bigger. And then of course, we've finally seen actual interesting inflation numbers coming through the official statistics, right? In excess of six point, or excuse me, 6% inflation on the CPI index for the last 12 months. So there's definitely been parts of the story that have fallen into place in the intervening time. But I agree with you. People who were not paying attention started paying attention. Part of it is because of this amazing technology, this number go up technology is what we like to call it, which is when the price goes up, people start paying attention. That's when I was paying attention back in 2017, right? I saw the price go up and I thought, ah, you know, I got dollar signs in my eyes or now Bitcoin signs in my eyes. And that really grabs people's attention when the price goes up. Then they do the work and the due diligence, and it becomes a sort of feedback loop through these cycles. But the thesis for owning a hard money asset with a limited supply has never been stronger than where we sit in the world today here in late 2021. Now, when it comes to Bitcoin... There's just so many topics and areas to study as cryptocurrencies are a brand new asset class. 
Bitcoin, you know, was invented prior to 2010. So it's been around less than two decades. And there's no way we're going to be able to cover everything regarding Bitcoin just in one episode. But we're going to touch on some of the interesting pieces. And maybe if it's something that's new to you, it'll help you guide you in the right direction. Now, Andy, you are a financial advisor and wealth manager. So let's dive into portfolio allocation and how that relates to Bitcoin. So first off, why should someone even consider Bitcoin in their portfolio? Gosh, and there's so many good reasons. Let's see if I can hit them all. So the first thing is that we look to history. Bitcoin is the best performing major asset in history ever. So as you pointed out, it's over a decade old. Let's call it 13 years old, roughly. Now, it didn't trade with a dollar price until maybe a year after its birth. That's the uh, famous or infamous pizza transaction, right? 10,000 Bitcoins exchanged for two Papa John's pizzas. Needless to say, that now weighs in at about $300 million per pizza in today's purchasing power terms for Bitcoin. So those were expensive pizzas. Laszlo Hansik, I'm mispronouncing his name. He's the guy who made the transaction. I don't think he regrets it. I suspect he has plenty of other Bitcoins in his treasury because he was an early Bitcoin miner. Suffice to say that the price has gone up dramatically and it's now over a trillion dollars in network value. So you look to history and you say, wow, that's a great performing asset. And when you construct a portfolio that includes Bitcoin, some interesting things start to happen. First of all, the performance of the portfolio goes up because of what we just described. The second is, and I'm just talking about total return, right? But the second is when you think about standard deviation or volatility of the portfolio, and that's one of the risk measures that investors use. It's not my primary risk measure because when I think of risk, I mostly think of permanent loss of capital. But a lot of people in the investment world care about the volatility of a portfolio. And what's interesting about Bitcoin is that its price movement is pretty uncorrelated to most major asset classes. So when you run the matrix of correlations between Bitcoin and US stocks, foreign developed market stocks, emerging market stocks, the bond market as represented by the Barclays Aggregate Index, gold, you run this correlation matrix. And what you find is that since its history, it's, let's say it's roughly 10 years of dependable price data that you can get on Bitcoin. It doesn't extend further than that. Really, the data aren't that strong. There's holes in the data and the price data. But if you look at the last 10 years of data, you find that the correlation between Bitcoin and any of those assets is less than 20%. So that's really nice to have an uncorrelated asset that goes up a lot in price or in value. Well, so that's the past, but what about the future? I still see huge upside in Bitcoin. I see the market potential or the potential value of Bitcoin, let's say a decade from now, I could easily see us at million dollars per Bitcoin. By the way, current price is in the high 50,000s, right? So you're talking about making close to 20 times your money. But the potential really honestly could be close to 100 to $200 trillion of value. And now you're talking about multiple millions of dollars of value per Bitcoin. And that market potential, we can get into in some detail. The no-brainer thing is digital gold. So 
if the gold market today is roughly 10 trillion and maybe you say okay but the investment component of that is i don't know 6 or 7 trillion is bitcoin going to eat a bunch of that yeah i think it is is bitcoin going to eat a significant portion of the fiat money market fiat currency market yeah eventually if it reaches its potential what about offshore assets if i'm a 100 million dollar guy especially not located in the United States or Western Europe, and I want to diversify my assets. It used to be that I buy real estate in London, you know, I buy a flat in London, and I buy an apartment in New York, and I buy a few different assets in different places. Do I want to get me some of that asset that I can walk across a border with based on my ability to remember 12 or 24 words you know, that somebody would literally have to beat out of me if they want to get my money? Yeah, I want to own me some of that. So that's offshore assets. You've got demonetization of other assets. So we've lived in this strange world where things like real estate are what people use as a store of value. Well, if I had this much more liquid and much more transportable and transferable and unseizable and you know hard to censor in terms of payments asset class, you know, how do I think about if there's $300 billion of real estate? Should some of that flow into store of value used for Bitcoin? Yes, I think it should. The bond market is enormous, right? Maybe it's, I don't know, $100 trillion roughly globally. If bonds are yielding negative rates, right? Because, okay, your bond portfolio is yielding two, three, four, five 5%, but inflation is 6%. Do I want to own that limited supply hard money asset or do I want to own these negative real yield bonds? I think that's a pretty simple answer. And then there's probably ways to win with Bitcoin that we haven't even thought about, right? It's software, it's extensible, you can build new use cases on it, and software developers are smart. So if there's an opportunity to build something cool on Bitcoin, they will. And so my guess is there will be uses and things built on Bitcoin that we just haven't even thought about yet. So lots of ways to win, huge potential upside on the valuation. You know, my evaluation framework, I'm actually updating it lately. I think in the book, it was something like $400,000 per Bitcoin by the end of a decade. So that was two years ago. So that would be $400,000 in eight years right now. I'm actually more bullish, partly because the price has already moved toward the target. Needless to say, it was 8,500 when I published the book. Now we're at whatever, 58,000, something like that. So we're closer to the target. But also, a lot of things have happened in the world. That get us closer to success, right? Uh, one of the key events being uh, China, you know, basically all the mining capacity or much of it moving out of China. And we can talk about that. That's another story. So, anyway, that's the valuation framework. I haven't fully answered your question yet, though, which is what's the other role in the portfolio? Because people ask me this all the time. They say, okay, what's your Bitcoin allocation for low risk portfolios, medium risk portfolios, high risk portfolios for clients? And the answer is, about 5%, 5%, and 5% at the moment. Why is it the same for different risk levels? Well, it serves a different role for different risk levels. So at the high end, it's kind of obvious. Okay, Bitcoin's dollar price or euro price or fiat currency price is quite volatile. And so people view it as a risk asset. And the upside potential is orders of magnitude, right? You could make a huge return on this thing. So that means it belongs in a high risk portfolio. But then at the other end of the spectrum, what is the biggest risk? What is kryptonite for a quote, low risk portfolio? 
low-risk portfolio tends to be crammed full of bonds, and it's inflation uh, that can really ruin a bond portfolio. So how do you hedge out the inflation risk? Well, you own what I call hard money assets. For me, that's gold and that's Bitcoin. And I got to tell you, it's become more Bitcoin and less gold on a relative basis because I see Bitcoin capturing mindshare. I see smart institutional investors saying, well, there was a reason that I owned gold as that hard money asset that could potentially protect me from significant inflation in the future if that happens. But now I see that Bitcoin actually outscores gold along a lot of the parameters that make something a good hard money. And so I want to own more Bitcoin than I would have otherwise, and I'm going to take a chunk out of the gold allocation of the portfolio and put it into Bitcoin. So there it is. That's uh, basically the investment thesis where I see it fits in the portfolio. That's how I implement it for my clients. And as time goes by, that may change. But in a world of higher inflation than we've seen in three decades, to me, it's a pretty clear case for Bitcoin in the portfolio. Now, I'm someone that's a bit younger than many investors and many listeners of the show. I'm 27. Something that's digitally native might make more sense to me. And you mentioned all these asset classes that Bitcoin could potentially steal market share from. And one of the biggest ones being the bond market. With inflation being so high, it makes sense to me why funds would naturally flow from bonds potentially to Bitcoin, either as some sort of hedge or diversification tool or for whatever reason. But to put myself in the shoes of some of these other investors, maybe that are potentially older than me, they might be thinking, okay, real estate and stocks, these are tangible assets that produce cash flow and are productive in the economy. So why would something that produces cash flow that's real and tangible, why would that potentially flow into Bitcoin? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think there's two layers there probably. So first of all, the earlier half of my career, basically, I was a value investor. I will never forget, great guy, my former colleague's name's Matt Fair. One day, I think it was probably in 2010 or 2011, came and pitched me on why gold, you know, why to own gold in a portfolio. And I basically vomited all over his investment thesis, right? I didn't get it at all. To me, holding some assets that generated no cash flow was completely anathema, made no sense to me. This is classic Benjamin Graham, Warren Buffett value investing stuff. It took me, you know, almost eight years later, however long it took, it took Bitcoin expanding my mind and forcing me to think about new assets, including monetary assets. It took that event for me to understand why monetary assets have value despite the fact that they don't generate cash flow. Now, there's a few frameworks to apply to this, but suffice to say that when you go back to the Austrian economist, Karl Menger specifically, he had a framework for three types of assets. And I talk about this in the book. There's capital assets. There's, let's say, three types of goods. There's consumption goods. Okay, that's like food and clothing and stuff we consume every day. There's capital goods. Those are the productive investment assets, factories, basically any actual physical capital good that you can have a paper claim against that is generative of cash flow over time. And then there's the monetary good. And the monetary is a separate category. 
And it stands to reason that actually the best money doesn't have any capital value in it because that's not why you hold or use money. You use money basically to have some working capital and store your wealth in something that's not too volatile in its purchasing power. We can talk about you know, that issue with Bitcoin, but that's why you hold money. And then when you transact, you don't really want to be using some asset that has like a significant capital good value bundled together with the monetary value because it just muddies the two pieces of value there. You'd rather have your pure monetary asset separate from your pure capital good asset, separate from your consumption goods. So that's a little bit the framework there. So then, okay, but back to the investor perspective, which is like, why would I even consider holding a monetary asset, which as you say, doesn't generate cash flow? Well, there's a few reasons. One is that when debt levels are so high and governments have to print their way out of the problem, hard money assets like gold tend to perform very well. As a reminder for uh, the market historians out there, and this was before my time and definitely before your time, the 1970s and 1980s specifically, um, you know, call it basically the decade of the 1970s ending in 1981, gold went up in price in dollar terms by 20x, right? You went from, I think it was $35 an ounce to around $700 an ounce. And in that market environment, bonds got murdered basically, right? Because inflation was high and stocks also did relatively poorly. So there are certain market environments in which owning the hard money asset is actually really critical to the overall performance of the portfolio. So that's just looking to history. Now think about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a growth money or a growth monetary asset that is eating away at the gold market as well as some of the other markets we described before. And so it's taking share of other assets, some of which do not generate cash flow, but the fact that it's taking market share out of existing assets like gold that have huge market capitalization means that there's very significant upsides. And if it can do the job of gold better than gold itself, you know, that's just a huge opportunity. It can't just be due to Bitcoin. Why do you believe gold hasn't performed as well in this inflationary environment? The latest peak in gold price was 2011. And if we go back to the global financial crisis, so 2008, 2009, after that, you know, obviously we got significant quantitative easing, right? Stimulus from uh, central banks, printing of base money. And people feared that that would be inflationary. I'm talking about consumer price inflation. Now, it turned out not to be, and we can get into why I think that is in retrospect, but there are definitely people out there who were worried. I'll never forget, I think it was Paul Singer who runs a big 30 or $40 billion hedge fund name escapes me at the moment, took out a full page ad in the Wall Street Journal talking about how central bank printing, you know, the Fed's actions were going to ruin the economy and we were going to end up in a high inflationary environment. I think he was a little early, might not have been wrong in the long run, but certainly it was, it was early to be talking about that you know, eight or nine years ago. And so we didn't see significant consumer price inflation, but gold sort of spiked up and then peaked in 2011 and then fell back. And then it had a little bit of a run starting in 2016. When you look at the last year and a half, it's been pretty disappointing. So coming out of COVID, 
it started to perform for the sort of obvious reasons that the Fed and all other central banks and governments were running big deficits and spending money to monetize those deficits. It's been pretty lackluster performance in the last almost year and a half. My personal view is that part of the story is Bitcoin just has more mindshare and Bitcoin is taking market share. I'll speak just for myself and my own clients, right? I first put gold in my clients' portfolios, I think in 2016 for the first time. And then I added Bitcoin in 2019. And have I been adding a lot of gold? Not really. Have I been adding Bitcoin? Yes, I have. And so that's like marginal dollars for my clients' portfolios. You know, and that movement is only millions of dollars to that asset class among my clients. But I have to believe that there are others like me who are thinking in this way. And then the second thing I'll say is because of the rapid recovery, relatively speaking, in the US economy and a lot of other economies globally, you know, stocks have just continued to outperform, margins have gone up. And if gold, which as you say, does not generate cash flows, is having to compete with stocks overall, then yeah, as long as we're not in a sort of deep recession or depressionary scenario along with high inflation, then gold does struggle to keep up with stocks. And so I think you've got sort of a perfect scenario for Bitcoin lately, which is, oh, there is some inflation, but also the economy is performing, let's say, a lot better than people feared it would in the earlier stages of the pandemic. And so it's kind of risk on. And so you got plenty of people saying, well, Bitcoin's a new thing. It's going to take share from gold, uh, but it's also sort of a risk asset because the volatility is high. And in a risk on environment, I'm going to put some money into Bitcoin as well, even regardless of inflation. So yeah, several factors there, if I had to guess, and it's impossible to prove any one of them, but that's my assessment. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. 
What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. Like we mentioned, Bitcoin is up significantly in the past 12 to 18 months. And I think many investors are like, I missed the boat. I need to move on to something else. And earlier, you mentioned that you have a model you use for Bitcoin's price, which I think is pretty interesting. And with how volatile Bitcoin is, how do you value it? And how do investors prevent buying the top, so to speak? Like previous bear market, it dropped over 80%. So I'm sure investors want to make sure they aren't buying the top again and seeing another significant drawdown. So how do you see the value and how can investors prevent you know, losing money in this spectacular asset that's performed very well? First of all, everyone thinks they're late to Bitcoin. There were guys who watched it go from a dollar to $30 and thought they were late and watched it go from a couple hundred dollars to $1,200. That was in 2013. There's actually a great video. I can't remember how to find it or what it's called on YouTube, but it's this guy talking about never buy Bitcoin because you know it's going to crash, right? And he talks about Bitcoin went from a dollar to $30 and then it crashed to $2. And then it went from you know, $100 to $1,200 and it crashed to $300. And he's going through the history of the cycles and you're thinking, yeah, but if I just bought it and held it, like I would have made insane multiples of my investment. And if the market potential is, as I suggested, potentially in excess of $100 trillion someday, then at a trillion dollars of change today, you could still make 100 times your investment. Now, as far as the valuation is concerned, I mentioned earlier five or six categories of value, whether it's gold, whether it's fiat money, whether it's offshore assets, whether it's taking share and demonetizing other major asset classes like the bond market, and whether it's new applications. I'm actually in the process of updating my valuation model. Literally, as we speak, I was working on it uh, yesterday for a purpose we'll probably discuss later in the conversation. But my target had been about $8 trillion total. I had laid out in the book $2 trillion of market share from gold, $2 trillion from fiat money, $2 trillion from offshore assets. By the way, the offshore asset market, nobody really knows how big it is, but somewhere in the $10 to $30 trillion range. Um, I was rather conservative with the category of taking share from other assets, you know, demonetizing other assets. I just assumed a trillion dollars of value there. If real estate alone is $300 trillion, you know, in stocks and bonds or another several hundred trillion there, I actually think that there's much more significant, potentially higher share that can be taken from those various assets. 
But like I said, I had used a trillion dollars there. And then I had assigned a trillion dollars of upside for new applications that we just haven't even thought of yet. So the total value was $8 trillion, and that'd be $400,000 per Bitcoin. Now, like I said, I'm revising this target upward. My latest target is about 20 trillion within a decade. And 20 trillion is roughly $1 million per Bitcoin, or call it 18 times the current price. And what's changed between then and now, right? What changed between my $8 trillion target and my $20 trillion target? And there's a couple of things that have changed in the two, two and a half years that have gone by. So the first is just the thesis has played out, right? I mean, obviously back then we were at 8,500 per Bitcoin, now we're at 58,000, right? So it's already made a multiple. But that's just a price move. That says nothing about the underlying fundamentals. Well, another thing that happened was one of the major risks, which is that somehow China or the Chinese government manages to take over and control a majority of the mining capacity, that risk has been removed because China earlier this year kicked out most of the miners, which meant that now most of the mining capacity is not located in any one single country, which removes this big risk of one government basically taking action to try and destroy Bitcoin. So that risk is basically gone now. So that's one. And then the second thing I would say is just ongoing stimulus. I mean, I published the book with the $8 trillion target before COVID. And so we had several trillion dollars worth of new money printed, trillions of dollars in deficits. And it appears not only that we had that sort of one-time stimulus expense, but also we've got ongoing new government policy. We had a regime shift. Democratic Party took power in the United States. And it looks like the Democratic Party is happy to run even larger deficits than had been the case under the prior administration. And so every deficit dollar that gets spent has to be paid for somehow. And it, pay, it gets paid for either by outright borrowing, where investors are lending the government money. I'm talking about you know mom and pop investors or fund managers who have institutional money or foreign central governments who are buying US treasury bonds. But the reality is demand is falling, right? Foreign central banks, especially China, are not buying as many US treasury bonds. And so who's had to step into the breach? Well, that's the Federal Reserve. And how does the Federal Reserve pay for the bonds that they buy to fund these deficits? They print money. And so we're seeing actual outright monetization of government debt. And historically, that has been significantly inflationary. It actually gets to one of the more interesting pieces of analysis that I found in my studies of Bitcoin, which is everybody talks about Milton Friedman, free market, you know, monetarist economist. And what he said about inflation was, it's always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And that's true as far as it goes, but which isn't, isn't very far. When you look at the historical record, and there's some work done by another economist, Steve Hankey, who, by the way, is not pro-Bitcoin, but, uh, but he does have some things right. And one of the things he has right is he's done a historical survey of major inflations through history, especially in the last century. And what he found was that it isn't until governments are really running large 
structural fiscal deficits, it's not until you reach that point that you tend to get large inflations. So yes, it's monetary, but really it's about the government is way overspending and therefore the central bank comes in and starts monetizing the debt and printing the money. And that's when you tend to get higher inflation in modern history. So anyway, all that's to say that if I already thought that the way out of the excess debt problem, not only in the United States, but in the Western world and the rest of the world, if I already thought that the easiest way out was printing money and inflation, well, now that thesis is, is all the more clear. And by the way, if it's of interest, we can talk about you know, some of the theoretical alternatives for getting our way out of this excess debt problem or even what the magnitude of that debt problem is. But uh, I'll leave it up to you. And to follow up on my second part of my question, how can investors prevent buying the top? First of all, there's no way to be sure. Like I said, everyone thinks they're late. And yet, if you hold Bitcoin for any five-year period throughout its history, you make a multiple of your investment, right? So there's that historical fact. So if you can hold for five years, history tells you you'll make a nice return. And of course, you know the future past, is, past performance is no guarantee of the future. Signs that I look for regarding a top... I look for that telltale blow-off top, which is a rapid price movement in a short period of time. And what that looks like is you had blow-off tops in 2017 as well as 2013. And the one in 2013 was extremely dramatic, but even the one in 2017 was pretty noticeable. Basically, you had the price double in like a month, right? And so... I'm looking for that telltale sign of price doubling in roughly a month, sitting today at a little under 60K per Bitcoin. You know, if by Christmas, it's almost Thanksgiving where we're recording here. If by Christmas we're over 100K, then yeah, maybe I'm getting a little nervous about buying a top. The other measurement that's actually somewhat useful is the 200 day moving average. Basically, when the price to the 200-day moving average price, when that ratio goes above two or even goes above two and a half, that's when, by historical standards, you're really in pretty thin air. It means that the price has moved very rapidly overall compared to recent history, and the chances are high that you're going to suffer a downturn or a correction. So yeah, blow off top or you know, current price to 200-day moving average of over two and a half times. Those are some telltale signs of a top for me. That reminds me, TIP put together a similar tool to look at Bitcoin's current valuation relative to historical data. Preston Pish put this together with Trace Mayer, I believe, and they called the statistic the Mayer multiple, which is the current price over the 200-day moving average. I'll be sure to link the info we have on TIP's Mayor Multiple in the show notes for those interested. It's funny you mention it. I think I actually remember the Twitter handle maybe like TIP Mayor Multiple or something. Yep, that's right. Yeah, it's a useful tool. Hats off to uh, Preston, who's a friend and who's been on top of this Bitcoin situation for a number of years now. One thing I find fascinating about Bitcoin is how much emphasis the people in this space put on things other than Bitcoin. So like your book, for example, 
the name of chapter one is why is money? Number two is what is money? And then we've already talked a little bit about just like the global economy and current environment in which Bitcoin operates, which is, in my opinion, is very important. So why is it important to first understand money and what is good money versus what is bad money? Maybe compare Bitcoin to gold and the US dollar or fiat currencies, if you'd like. So Clay, this was maybe the most important and the hardest pieces of analysis or pieces of learning for me, which is exactly what you said, what makes something good money? And nobody teaches us this stuff. I took an economics degree from a good college. And the extent of the discussion of what is money is, oh yeah, it's a medium of exchange and a store of value and a unit of account. And there was no discussion of, well, what makes something a good medium of exchange or store of value or unit of account? So I researched it and I came up with a framework of characteristics that underlie good money. And I I'm sorry to say that I found 14 of them. I wish it was a short answer, but it's just not. And so the 14 characteristics I identify are that a good form of money should be identifiable, transferable, durable, divisible, dense in value, scarce, that's really important, short-term stable and long-term stable. I differentiate between those two. Fungible, unseizable, censorship-resistant, private, required for some purpose, and backed by a powerful agent. And we can talk about those various characteristics uh, if you'd like, but suffice to say that no form of money scores well on all those characteristics. So it's not like you can say, oh yeah, the world's best money checks all those boxes and not only checks the box, but scores really well. Because each of those characteristics is itself some spectrum, right? It's not binary of, oh, it's scarce or no, it's not scarce. It's how scarce is it? And likewise, transferable, fungible, all those characteristics. So they're each a continuum. So what I do is I equal weight them, which is certainly wrong, but it's also the best thing I can think of because deciding, oh, you know, scarcity is whatever, twice as important, let's say, as divisibility or durability is one and a half times as important as identifiability. These are impossible things to quantify. But I think it's useful as an exercise to think about, oh, if I equal weight these characteristics, how does the dollar score? How does gold score? How does Bitcoin score? And not only how does Bitcoin score today, but how might it score in the future? And so that's one of the things I do. And the dollar for me at the moment scores better than gold, except for the more and faster they print those dollars, the lower the score, uh, because that scarcity and also that long-term value stability is hampered or is impaired as more dollars are printed. Gold is kind of static, right? Gold ain't changed much in the last couple of millennia. Bitcoin already, to me, outscores gold slightly overall. But Bitcoin is improving because Bitcoin is only 13 years old and there are more smart people who are coming to work on the base protocol as well as are building exchanges, borrowing and lending systems, wallets for transferring value, financial services and companies that are basically integrating with the existing financial system. 
So the Bitcoin network is continuously improving, not only at the base protocol layer, but in terms of the overall ecosystem that's being built on top of it. And I see, therefore, Bitcoin's overall score, such as it is, going up in the future, whereas gold's is static and the dollar's, frankly, is going down. And by the way, I'll just say, you know, is the dollar becoming worse money over time? Yes, as they print it faster. However, the dollar is still the cleanest dirty shirt among the fiat currencies. And when I look ahead to the future, I think about, okay, what does the monetary world look like five years from now or 10 years from now? I don't see Bitcoin killing the dollar. If anything, I see Bitcoin taking share from some of the much weaker currencies in the world today. And perhaps ironically, I see stable coins, right, which are sort of a manifestation of dollars on a crypto-based blockchain system. I see those getting adopted more. And I see actually stable coins, which are digital dollars, more likely stealing share from weaker foreign currencies. And then perhaps Bitcoin taking share from the dollar ultimately years from now. You talked about fiat money, gold, and Bitcoin and how they kind of relate. And you mentioned the 14 characteristics of money. Where is Bitcoin superior in these 14 characteristics and where is it inferior? Maybe we'll start with, first of all, scarcity. So gold is quite scarce. And the way that gold's scarcity is commonly measured is with this concept called stock to flow. And it's the ratio of how much gold is there above ground in the world versus how much gets created in a given year. And today, the stock to flow ratio of gold is in excess of 50, which is to say for every 100 tons of gold that exists above ground in the world, two tons get pulled out of the ground every year. The dollar has no real scarcity other than how quickly the Federal Reserve Board decides to print base money, plus how quickly the banking system on top of that of those reserves you know, multiplies out the money supply. And so suffice to say that the level of M2 monetary supply increase over the last year or year and a half, I can't remember, it's like 30 or 40%. It's a really big number. So it's growing. The number of dollars is growing much more rapidly than the 2% growth in the quantity of gold. Now we look at Bitcoin. Bitcoin's stock to flow ratio, and therefore its scarcity changes over time. And it's all algorithmic. It was set in the code from day one, And it has this characteristic, what we call this event, which is called the halving. It's a 50% or a halving of the amount of new supply that gets printed every day You know, with every block of transactions, every 10 minutes, in fact. And we've already been through, what, three halvings because it used to be 50 Bitcoins per block. And then four years later, it was 25 per block and then 12 and a half. And now we're at six and a quarter. And at that rate... Bitcoin is already scarcer. That is to say, the rate of production annually is a lower percentage than gold. And then, of course, in a couple more years from now, it'll be even further reduced. So already, Bitcoin is scarcer than gold, and gold is considered 
effectively the scarcest major form of money or monetary asset in the world. So clearly that has an advantage on scarcity. Let's talk about identifiability, which is a little bit like talking about counterfeiting. So as we know, dollars can be counterfeited. They frequently are. There are certain governments even out there that counterfeit dollars. Other governments, not the US government. Gold can be counterfeited. I've heard tell of tungsten bars wrapped in gold, right? Where the core is much less expensive tungsten. I don't believe there's been an audit of Fort Knox and the gold holdings there. I'm not sure there have been audits of the gold holdings in London in recent history. So we don't really know whether all the gold is there. One of the beauties of the Bitcoin network is it's impossible to fake a Bitcoin. Either your private key can be used to sign a transaction to access an unspent transaction output on the Bitcoin network, or it can't. There's really no faking it. So Bitcoin has essentially perfect identifiability, provided that you're running your node right and you're running your software correctly. The divisibility of Bitcoin is very strong. People talk about, oh, a Bitcoin's $58,000. I missed the boat. It's too expensive. Well, okay. But each Bitcoin is divisible into 100 million pieces called Satoshis. And needless to say, 58,000 divided by 100 million is a pretty small number per sat, as we like to say. So it's extremely divisible. Let's talk about seizability. One of the problems with gold, and it's true as well of physical dollars, cash, is that you can get stolen you know, by a man with a gun. And one of the beauties of Bitcoin is it's actually securable. It gives you a lot of flexibility with how you secure it. So for example, you can write down your key on a piece of paper, not advisable. Better than that is writing it down on a piece of paper and cutting it into pieces and putting those in different places such that no single piece gives you access to the full key and therefore the money. Can't do that with cash or with gold, right? Yes, you can divide your gold pile into three pieces, but each of those is worth stealing on its own. Same with cash. Better than what I described is setting up a multi-signature scheme, which is something that is native to the Bitcoin blockchain. It's part of the code. And you can set it up so that you have to have you know, three keys to access the money. And each of those keys is useless on its own, truly useless. At least if you split a key into three pieces, then you have two of the pieces. Well, then maybe you can brute force and guess the third piece, right? But not so with multi-sig. Each of those pieces gives you no information. There's interesting ways in which you can secure Bitcoin. Of course, the most interesting we like to talk about is the brain wallet, which is if you can memorize 12 words, you can walk across a border with any amount of Bitcoin in your brain. And that's a, a pretty useful trick for people who have to relocate, leave war zones, et cetera, et cetera. The seizability piece you talk about and the potential implications of it are just mind-blowing. Just like from a personal level to the sovereign level, it's just incredible what that could potentially lead to. The mind goes to interesting places, right? What happens if Bitcoin reaches its potential, turns into a $100 trillion or $200 trillion asset, and therefore a significant portion of the world's wealth is stored in this asset that you can store in your brain, where the only way they can take it from you is if they literally beat it out of you. And that is the criticism to that as well. Governments will beat it out of you if they have to, or 
thieves, you know, kidnappers, what have you. But you still have the advantage or the holder, the user still has the advantage that yes, they can be coerced, but they still at some point have to cough it up. You know, they have to comply. And if the victim is killed, tortured to death, let's say, the aggressor doesn't get any value out of that. That's different than if someone kills you for your gold or someone kills you for your real estate, for that nice uh, piece of land you've got on a hill. Um, once you're gone and once you fail to defend it, well, then the aggressor gets the asset. Not so with Bitcoin. Uh, you can take it to the grave. And that really reduces actually the incentive to violence because you can either set it up very, very securely, like I described, so that you don't have outright control. Or if you do have outright control, yeah, there's not an incentive to steal it because the aggressor is not guaranteed that they'll get any value out of it, even if they perpetrate violence against you. Now, you mentioned a few of the pieces where Bitcoin is, it seems to be superior, the scarcity, the seizability, and you mentioned a couple others. The ones for me that come to mind are you know, the volatility. I'm not sure which one exactly that falls into, but are there any others where Bitcoin today is inferior? There are a couple categories where it is inferior. So two that I identify are, and maybe I'll get into three actually. So one is powerful backing or backing by some powerful agent. So the classic case, of course, is the dollar is effectively backed by the US military machine. Bitcoin doesn't have that today. On the other hand, there are already significant constituents, whether they're commercial organizations, you know, there's an entire Bitcoin industry that has sprouted up, or whether it's even governments, right? We've got our first government that's outright backing Bitcoin. That's El Salvador, where it was declared legal tender. So we're starting to see inklings of powerful organizations basically backing Bitcoin, but, but nothing yet that compares to the US military. So that's a deficiency, I guess you could argue. Another one is basically requirement for some purpose. So again, the classic case, you got to have dollars to pay taxes if you're a US citizen or whatever jurisdiction you're in, you got to pay taxes in the local fiat currency. So that provides, call it artificial demand for that money that Bitcoin doesn't have and gold doesn't have, frankly. I think eventually we may see a world where Bitcoin is the preferred form of money. It is the form of money that people prefer to receive. And whether or not that's a government that's sort of forcing people to hold some amount of the money to make a specific kind of payment, I don't think it's going to matter in the long run, but I think in the short run, that is a factor. And the third one I think I'll highlight is privacy. This is a major misconception in the general public is people think that Bitcoin is private money. It's like the secret transaction money. You know, if you want to buy your illicit good or service, use Bitcoin. Please, people, if you're going to buy illicit goods or services, use cash dollars. Much more effective. Because one of the things that's interesting about Bitcoin is the entire transaction history is all embedded in that blockchain data structure. And so all you have to do is tie someone's identity to some point in that history, in that chain, and it becomes relatively clear you know, who, who transacted. Now, there's an entire industry devoted to this. It's called chain analysis. There are several companies with multi-billion dollar valuations. Um, some of their customers, some of their best customers are government agencies, by the way. 
no surprise. And so, yeah, the Bitcoin blockchain is actually pretty well surveilled. And so the privacy in Bitcoin is actually not very good, which is somewhat of a disappointment to me in general, because I do believe free people should have the right to transact privately. It's possible that upgrades, there was actually a recent upgrade that happened to the Bitcoin blockchain Taproot, which implements new signature schemes and new ways of aggregating transactions that could be helpful for privacy in the future. And there are some techniques um, like uh, coin joins, you know, basically pooling different quantities of Bitcoins of, of unspent transaction outputs um, and then directing them at different locations provide arguably some measure of privacy. Um, I personally don't really trust the privacy level of those systems. Will they improve over time? Perhaps, maybe, probably. I think it may take years uh, and years to get better privacy on Bitcoin. But for the moment, if you want privacy when transacting, physical cash dollars are your best bet. You mentioned El Salvador there. And I don't know if I could talk about Bitcoin without at least bringing up what is happening in that country. Now, before we get into this, I just want to say, you know, I'm sure Andy and I or anyone we're associated with, we don't endorse anything that the government is doing in El Salvador. We're just analyzing what they're doing with Bitcoin specifically. And just this year, we've seen El Salvador adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. And in other other news this week, they announced a potential bond issuance of $1 billion. I'm not sure if you saw this, but I just read the details on this you know, just recently. And I believe they're going to use half of that money to just straight up buy Bitcoin and the other half to invest in Bitcoin mining rigs. So I'm curious what your thoughts are, just some of the things El Salvador is doing and is there potential for other countries to start following suit? Absolutely, there is. And this has been one of the great, exciting surprises of the year 2021. Not the only surprise, but one of the biggest ones. I did not anticipate a country declaring Bitcoin to be legal tender by 2021. That is something that I thought might happen farther into the future. Surprise, surprise, it happened this year. So there's a lot of different elements to this. So the first question to ask is, what kind of country would have an incentive to try and adopt Bitcoin in large scale in a widespread manner? And there's a few factors that I consider. You know, one is do you have a weak currency? Does your currency inflate at a rapid rate or is it not widely accepted or do people just not really want to use it? Or, as you know, in the case of El Salvador and other countries, are you already on a dollar standard? So do you already not control your own monetary policy such that if you switch to Bitcoin, you're not giving up you know, some monetary policy control that you had to begin with. So that was the case with El Salvador. There are other dollarized countries in the world. Ecuador comes to mind. I think Panama as well. Although Panama may have a dollar peg. I can't remember off the top of my head. Another major factor is remittances. And this is a huge story for El Salvador, which is yeah, something like quarter or a third of the entire GDP, right? The entire annual output or production of the company, of the country, excuse me, comes in the form of money sent from abroad. 
a lot of El Salvadorans living in the United States, they work jobs that pay better here than they do in El Salvador, and then they remit money back to their families in the country. So if you're on a dollar system or you don't have a strong currency and you have huge remittance flows, then you've got uh, you know, a good incentive uh, basically to go to Bitcoin. Likewise, arguably, if you have significant energy resources and, uh, and you can effectively compete in the global market for Bitcoin mining, I think that's another factor. So I would not be surprised to see other Latin American countries, you know, Central American or Caribbean or South American. You know, I thought of Haiti as an example. And there have been stories. It's mostly stories. I don't know how much traction there is, but things going on in the Congress in Panama. I think there was a proposal maybe in Uruguay. Um, you know, Argentina has has chronically had a problem with inflation and defaults. You know, wouldn't surprise me if they came on board at some point. So yeah, will there be others? I am pretty confident there will be. I don't know necessarily whether they'll just outright adopt Bitcoin. You definitely could see some hybrid models where, okay, the country has a fiat currency and maybe they start to buy back Bitcoin as partial backing for their fiat currency. And so they hold Bitcoin as, as a reserve asset. Maybe it's not the only reserve asset they hold. Maybe they hold some Bitcoin, maybe they hold some gold, um, some kind of a hybrid structure like that. But it's a really interesting case study of a country that didn't have that much to lose with respect to their existing monetary system and had a lot to gain in terms of savings on remittances, as well as press, right? Let's be frank. Uh, President Nayib Bukele, who has a very high approval rating still in El Salvador, is a master of social media. And he's created a perception, which is El Salvador, which is a relatively poor country, is forward-looking, is forward-thinking, and it's open for business. And if you are someone who is positive on Bitcoin, you know maybe you hold a lot of Bitcoin, or maybe you work in the industry, you see now a jurisdiction that's friendly to you because you are a big believer in Bitcoin. There's a potential to attract a decent amount of talent, talented people that otherwise uh, you know, would not have been interested in moving to El Salvador. So there may be an opportunity basically to raise the economic game of this uh, relatively small, impoverished country in, in Central America. And that's a, if it works out, and we'll be watching carefully, you know, that, that could be a huge win for the country overall, as well as for his presidency. Just getting to the bond issue, I did see that that headline in the story. I don't know if we know that much detail about how it'll shape up, but yeah, they had already bought some Bitcoin for their treasury, and now they're planning on buying more, as you said, half a billion dollars. And there was relatively soon or early in the process of El Salvador adopting Bitcoin, there was this meme, which is, you know, let's basically put the volcanoes to work, right? Let's harness the geothermal energy from the I don't want to say active volcanoes, but yeah, I guess that's effectively what it is in, in El Salvador and use it to mine Bitcoin. And they've already started implementing it. And look, it's a pretty interesting idea. Geothermal energy, by the way, is very clean from a carbon and greenhouse gas emission perspective. And also it's frequently located far from population centers. And so it's an opportunity basically to monetize an otherwise stranded 
clean energy asset. And it's a smart move. We'll see how they actually implement it and build it out. And no doubt it'll take a while to actually build out the data centers, get the mining rigs, get it all plugged in and mining Bitcoin. But pretty interesting uh, financial transaction there. And it's also a source of funding in general for the economy. I mean, the, the El Salvador economy is not that big. So a billion dollar inflow of capital actually moves the needle. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. It's insane to think about how El Salvador is literally harnessing the energy of volcanoes to mine Bitcoin and is taking on cheap U.S. dollar debt to do it. And you brought up the environmental piece of that. I'd love to touch on some of the common misconceptions around Bitcoin and get your thoughts because it seems like we hear the same concerns over and over again. To get us kicked off, let's start with the environmental concern. Many people will state that Bitcoin is bad for the environment because of the amount of energy that is required to run the protocol. So my question to you is, is Bitcoin bad for the environment? 
So this is a really subtle question, and there's several factors at play here. So the first response to that question is, compared to what? So as an example, Bitcoin, as we talked about, is competing to be the world's premier hard money asset, and it's taking market share from gold. Well, the data I've seen indicate that total energy usage to extract gold, right, to mine gold and keep that monetary system running, something like three times the energy usage of the Bitcoin network. So Bitcoin is currently more efficient in terms of energy usage than gold. By the way, the total cost of running the dollar network, who knows? I mean, it's bank branches you know, and armored trucks to move the cash. Um, arguably, it's some percentage of the US military to keep the peace in the Middle East to support the petrodollar. And that's a whole other, other story. So the first question is compared to what? The second thing to consider is actually Bitcoin is accelerating, I believe, the adoption and the installation of carbon neutral energy capacity, electricity capacity. So why is that? Bitcoin is the first global market for electricity. What I mean by that is electricity doesn't travel that far. In other words, if you've got a power plant, you have to locate it within a couple hundred miles of the population center where you're using the electricity because too much is lost in transit if it's farther than that. So there's all this renewable energy that's located nowhere near people, right? Whether that's hydropower in the inland areas of China or whether that's geothermal in remote areas of Central America or Iceland or what have you, or it's deserts where the sun shines very brightly, where you'd like to put a lot of solar panels, but there's no people there. And likewise, it's very windy locations that aren't located near cities. And so now those assets can be monetized. I happen to know specifically of several projects. There's one going on in the deserts of Morocco, which is both wind and solar based. And they're going to set up a bunch of Bitcoin mining capacity. And so what that is, is it's generating incremental demand for wind and solar and other renewable installed capacity, which means more sales for those companies, which funds their research and development budgets, which brings down the average cost of those renewable energy assets. And that's the situation we're in right now, especially for most of the developing world. And I just imagine... I just imagine the conversation with you know some, I don't know, regional governor in India, where some person, some representative from the UN is saying, don't you install that coal capacity, right? Install renewable capacity. Same with China. And the guy's like, look, I got people living on a couple dollars a day. I got to just install the cheapest energy source that's available to me. So I'm going to install what's cheapest right now. And so if Bitcoin is increasing the installed capacity of renewables, then it's bringing those sources down the cost curve faster, which means that when there are decisions about new projects getting installed a few years from now, those energy sources will be all the more competitive. There's another factor here, which is baseload capacity and basically Bitcoin providing a buffer on existing functional grids. So one of the things that's happening in Texas is There's a bunch of new Bitcoin mining that's been installed and also being installed. Texas had this sad case last year of large parts of the grid just basically losing power. It was very cold. People died. 
uh, my aunt and uncle, they were fine, but it was a pretty unpleasant experience, you know, for them living through that uh, for several days with basically no access to energy. And one of the things that Bitcoin does is Bitcoin is the easiest user of energy to take offline. And so what that means is Bitcoin provides demand for energy. So you get installation of capacity. And then whenever, you know, God forbid, there's some outage and there isn't enough energy to feed both the Bitcoin miners and households and factories, et cetera. Well, then the Bitcoin miners say, no problem. We'll go offline. You know, it's okay if we're offline for a day or a week. We can still be profitable with 95 plus percent uptime over the long run. And so grid operators, utilities essentially, are contracting with Bitcoin miners saying, hey, you know, we're happy for you to be on the grid and consume power as long as you guys are, are willing to go offline when the rest of the grid, when households most need that energy. And so it, it's the swing consumer of energy that actually makes the overall grid more robust because it incentivizes extra capacity and, and you can pull the Bitcoin demand off the market when necessary, basically in an emergency to, to feed the rest of the critical uh, users of energy. So there's a lot of ways to look at Bitcoin's energy use. The, f- the final factor is, think about fiat money in general. Does printing more money and reducing interest rates and stimulating demand and spending on goods and services is that good for the environment overall, or is that bad for the environment overall? I believe it results in excess consumption. It results in us buying more stuff that we don't really need. And I think that if we were on a hard money standard, equilibrium interest rates would be higher, but people would think harder about spending on frivolous stuff that they don't need. And the environmental benefit of that on a hard money standard like Bitcoin could be truly enormous. And that will take years to get to. But if we get there, I think it'll be a huge net positive for the environment overall. So essentially that last point there, an inflationary system, essentially it needs to grow in order to continue to function. So that means it needs to grow forever. Is that right? Yes. And perhaps even at an accelerating rate. And this is the statistic I think Jeff Booth put in his great book, which is, and I can't remember the time frame. I don't know if it's a decade or a decade and a half, but it's something on the order of global GDP has grown. I want to say, well, I can't remember the number. Maybe it's like $50 trillion. I think it's $30 trillion is the number. Maybe it was $30 trillion of economic growth in 20 years or something. But the amount of debt in the economy to fuel that growth is 150 trillion. It's like five times as much debt issuance for a given level of economic growth. And that is pretty clearly unsustainable. That system, that debt-fueled system has lasted longer than many people thought it would, but it appears to be accelerating and not decelerating. And that's likely to end badly unless and until we can transition to a better hard money system I personally believe that Bitcoin is the best shot we've got at making a peaceful transition from this long-term disastrous debt-based economy onto a hard money standard, which is going to be much more functional for civilization in the long run. And the book you reference there is The Price of Tomorrow by Jeff Booth. It's a fantastic book and 
relates to the environmental piece, Square and ARK Invest did research on this exact topic of how Bitcoin potentially incentivizes the transition to renewable and clean and green energy. And I'll be sure to link all of that in the show notes for those interested. Now, let's talk about the scarcity of Bitcoin. Some might argue that Bitcoin is not scarce because there are thousands of cryptocurrencies and there are new ones added all the time. So what makes Bitcoin special and why is Bitcoin better or different than all these other coins? So to my mind, Bitcoin is the only cryptocurrency or digital asset that has a credible, scarce monetary policy. And what that means is it's one thing to write the monetary policy into the code, which is the case for Bitcoin. But there also has to be a social consensus around that monetary policy because it is ultimately people that run the network. They run the nodes, they run the miners. Now, the history of Bitcoin is truly unique. First of all, the founder disappeared. This is a feature, not a bug. It means that there's no central figurehead or monarch, basically, that runs things. There's no leader. That's a good thing because you want the network to be broadly distributed. The second thing is the Bitcoin community essentially, well, in a figurative sense, fought a civil war culminating in 2017. There was a fight between two factions, one of which wanted to increase the block size, which would have increased the potential number of transactions that can clear through the network in each 10-minute block. And it got really ugly. It ultimately ended up culminating in a hard fork. Bitcoin Cash split off of the Bitcoin network. And there were a few important things that came out of that. The first is the hard fork essentially failed. When you look at the market capitalization of Bitcoin today, versus the faction that forked off into Bitcoin Cash. First of all, that faction forked again. And secondly, the, the market value is a tiny fraction of Bitcoin Core, or let's just say Bitcoin. So there's, there's a historical record there of an attempt by a faction to change the consensus mechanism failing. What does that mean? It tells you that that group within Bitcoin that resisted this change in the code and this change in the consensus mechanism won. And it gives us high confidence as Bitcoin holders that if someone were to suggest, uh, maybe we should just print a few more of these things, you know, maybe we should have a little bit of inflation or a little more inflation in Bitcoin. It gives us high confidence that anybody who suggests that's going to be rejected out of hand. So I have very high confidence in not only the code, but the social consensus around Bitcoin's monetary policy. And I don't have that kind of confidence in any of the other assets out there. And by the way, another reason that I have confidence in Bitcoin's monetary policy and consensus is that it's really pretty easy to run a Bitcoin node. So one of the problems with these more feature-rich cryptocurrencies is that if they are Turing complete or they can essentially do anything, it takes more data storage and it takes more bandwidth. So I can and I do run a Bitcoin node on a you know, not too fancy desktop computer that I have sitting on my right. And the Bitcoin blockchain is about 500 gigs or half a terabyte of data. So that's like half of a 
not too fantastic solid state hard drive. And if Moore's law continues, or if we keep seeing increases in the computational ability and storage capacity in these guys, right? Smartphones, we're probably not too far, maybe a couple of years or a few years from being able to run a Bitcoin node on a smartphone. This is not the case with some of these whizzier, fancier cryptocurrencies where it takes a lot more bandwidth and a lot more storage to run a node. What that means is few people run those nodes. Those nodes tend to be less distributed. They're sitting in data centers. Frequently, they're operated by centralized, um, basically, uh, data center operating companies rather than random people, individuals like me running their Bitcoin node. And so it's a lot easier to run a node, which means there are a lot more of them, which means the system is that much more resistant to change or to capture from some faction that basically wants to change the rules. So those are the reasons that, that I have much higher confidence in the monetary policy of Bitcoin. And so for me, there's really no substitute in the world of, of cryptos. I'll add one more factor, which is what we call the Lindy effect, right? This is this factor which was observed. Uh, it's named for Lindy's Eatery, which is now closed as of, I think, five or six years ago. It's this place that actors used to hang out off Broadway. And they would talk about and speculate on how long would a Broadway show likely run. And the finding was that the longer a show had been running, the longer it was like to run or likely to run. You know, you get things like cats, you know, running for 50 years or whatnot. And so this is a, actually a sort of a mathematical finding in nature and in human history and sociology and anthropology, which is, yeah, if something works securely or does its job over a long period of time, chances are it will continue in the future. Okay, well, this is especially true of security. And so the fact that the Bitcoin blockchain really hasn't failed or hasn't been hacked or funds haven't been stolen at the blockchain database level, it's one thing when people have failed to secure their private keys and those private keys get stolen you know, because they're stored on a computer and some hacker gets into the computer. That's a different thing. But Bitcoin has been chugging away unmolested in that regard and successful for longer than any other blockchain. And it always will be longer than any other blockchain because Bitcoin was first. So I have high confidence in the security of Bitcoin because the Bitcoin blockchain hasn't been hacked in 13 years. And it's hard for other competitive cryptocurrencies to catch up in that regard. And crucial to that, by the way, is the size of the bounty. So said a different way, if Bitcoin is a trillion dollar plus asset, then figuring out how to compromise it means you could potentially steal a trillion dollars. And so Bitcoin has had longer time in the field with more value over that time in the field than any other cryptocurrency. And as long as Bitcoin stays ahead of the pack in terms of its total network value, which it has done since it was incepted 13 years ago, as long as that's the case, then I'm going to have likely higher confidence in Bitcoin. And by the way, even if another one of these digital assets, cryptocurrencies, eclipses Bitcoin in total value at some point or for some period of time, I'm still going to be able to rely on the fact that the Bitcoin code changes and evolves very, very slowly. So some of these other projects, they regularly go through hard forks intentionally. You know, They update the code, they make it such that the new code 
does not comply with earlier versions of the software, which means anyone who is running a node on the network is out of luck. You better upgrade your software. If you don't upgrade your software, like you're kicked out of the system. Not so with Bitcoin. Bitcoin progresses by soft forks, which means that new versions of the software can be implemented and run while old versions of the software, old versions of the node, people running the nodes can still continue to run the old software. This makes the network much more robust and resistant to either malicious attacks by you know, developers of new versions or just from accidental you know, errors, bugs, basically, in the new versions of the software. It's a very different ethos. It's a very different way to run a distributed network. To my mind, it's far more secure than many of these other systems that continuously go through rapid change and hard forks. And so I still have more confidence in Bitcoin, even if some other digital asset becomes more valuable in terms of network value in dollar terms for some period of time. Many people will bring up, you know, if Bitcoin's so great and it's really going to do all these things that people say it's going to do, then the US government's going to feel threatened by it and they're just going to ban it and this thing's just going to fizzle off. So maybe talk about that risk and what that potentially might mean for Bitcoin. Clay, I'm glad you brought that one up because it's my favorite risk or it's my favorite piece of FUD, where FUD is fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And the reason it's my favorite is because I think the biggest gap exists between people's perception of the risk and the reality of the risk. And what does that mean? Well, a big gap between perception and reality is an investment opportunity. Yes, people say that governments want to be in the business of issuing the money, and therefore any new non-government form of money will be quashed by governments. I think that there's a couple of major errors in this logic. The first is, can they actually kill it? And five years ago, maybe if all the governments of the world had united to kill Bitcoin, maybe they could have. We're past that point. The network is so valuable and so distributed and has so much economic activity built on top of it, whether it's the wallet providers, whether it's the exchanges, whether it's the lending platforms, you know, the peer-to-peer payment providers. There's just too much at stake. And of course, there's lots of rabid Bitcoiners like me who will defend the network to the death because not only do we have wealth stored in it, but we actually believe that it's good for the world and that it's worth fighting for. So I don't think governments can kill it. The second issue is, you know, why would a government even want to try to prohibit it? Because you're talking about prohibition. And the thing about prohibition, at least in the United States, is it has a pretty ugly history. You know, you think of alcohol prohibition, which directly fueled the organized crime business. Likewise, the war, of, war on drugs, which is still with us today, right? I mean, how much smaller and less powerful and influential would the drug cartels, you know, would organized crime be throughout the Americas if uh, we hadn't been fighting, militarily fighting this industry, you know, for decades on end? I think there'd be a lot less violence throughout large portions of Central and South America. What we know is that prohibition doesn't work. And by the way, if you think that people get excited and riled up about defending their right to drink or smoke pot or what have you, or snort Coke, imagine how fired up they're going to get about the right to hold their own money in an environment when the government is printing and debasing the currency at a faster and faster rate. 
oh, and by the way, try confiscating Bitcoin, right? At least with something like illicit drugs, it's a physical object in the real world. You can get your hands on it. You can take it. Not so with Bitcoin if properly secured. So I think governments are going to recognize that they can't prohibit it. And by the way, again, at least in the US, I don't mind mentioning holding a fundraiser for congressperson or let's say candidate running for Congress, Erica Rhodes, who is running to unseat Brad Sherman, who is the incumbent, probably most anti-Bitcoin member of Congress out there. But there are people like me who are willing to spend dollars and effort in the political process defending Bitcoin's right to exist uh, while simultaneously educating uh, members of Congress and, and other people in power about the manifold benefits of Bitcoin overall to the US economy and to other economies throughout the world. So yeah, I just don't see it happening. I mean, is there a greater than zero chance of prohibition for Bitcoin in the Western world, you know, in the United States? You know, any risk is greater than zero. I see that risk as like less than 1% at this point in the United States over the next decade. By the way, even if it happens, Bitcoin's still probably going to win. In other words, by far the most likely outcome is prohibition never happens. You know, Bitcoin continues to grow and flourish. Even in a scenario where prohibition does occur for some period of time, by the way, think back to you know, alcohol prohibition, that didn't last. Even drug prohibition in the modern age is getting reversed slowly with time. So I think Bitcoin still wins in the long run. It's just a question of whether we take the easy path or the hard path. I'm doing my part to uh, help put us on the easy path, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Very interesting. Andy, thank you so much for coming onto the show. If anyone wants to learn more about Bitcoin, I highly recommend Andy's book, Why Buy Bitcoin? Before we close out the episode, Andy, tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Swan and where the audience can go to connect with you and learn more about your work. I am still a professional wealth manager. I've been at this for almost a decade. Prior, I was a you know, buy-side investor. And I couldn't miss the opportunity here to help bring Bitcoin to my fellow financial advisors. So as of very recently, I am also helping Swan Bitcoin launch Swan Advisor Services. And what we're doing is we're providing a service which is outright Bitcoin ownership for clients. And we're going to set it up as a product that is as seamless as possible with the financial advisors software, you know, whether it's portfolio reporting, buying and selling the asset, billing you know, for assets under management. And it's different from a paper-wrapped you know, security type of uh, Bitcoin instrument like the Bitcoin Trust, right? ticker GBTC that everyone knows. In this case, with this product, it is third-party custodied. But if the client wants to take custody of their own keys, of their own coins, they can do that. They have the ability to do that. So Swan is the only provider that I know of that's giving outright coin ownership implemented for financial advisors that's focused only on Bitcoin. We're leading with education and we're leading with the focus on Bitcoin, which we think is the clear leader among the hard money assets out there in the world today. To any listeners out there who either are financial advisors 
or know financial advisors or have a financial advisor that you think would benefit not only from uh, getting Bitcoin into clients' portfolios, but also just learning more about Bitcoin. I mean, we've got multiple people on the team who have published books. I'm not the only one. Uh, Jan Pritzker is another good example. We've got a whole team of really smart Bitcoiners that have written extensively in article format, as well as podcasters. And we're here to help educate both financial advisors and their clients if they want. You know, If you want to pull us into a meeting with a client who asks about whatever risk, whether it's prohibition or quantum computing you know, or the environmental impact or anything like that, we're available to help. So anyway, contact us at swanbitcoin.com forward slash advisor. If you want to keep up with me on Twitter, my handle is edstromandrew. And my personal website is andyedstrom.com. And as you mentioned, the book is Why Buy Bitcoin. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andy. You guys are doing fantastic things at Swan. And I highly recommend everyone check them out. Check out Andy's book. Thanks again, Andy. It was really a pleasure chatting with you. I really, really appreciate it. Pleasure was mine, Clay. Thanks for the chat. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources we have, as well as some tools you can use as an investor. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.